0: Hey, everybody, this is Pierre you're listening to episode number one zero nine of the Leading Wild Green podcast, where my mission is to help you live, learn and lead with confidence. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Thomas C. Murray, author of the book, Personal and Authentic, Designing Learning Experiences that Impact a Lifetime. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Tom, I know it's been a really challenging week for a lot of people in the sports world and beyond hearing about the death of legendary basketball player Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gigi. And, and I was just thinking about why it's so it has been so impacting so many people struggling and, and mourning the death of Kobe and Gigi. And I came to this conclusion as it relates to influence. Uh, John Maxwell, leadership guru John Maxwell, says that leadership is influence. And when we look around the world, not just in basketball in or in athletics, but around the world, we can see the impact that that Kobe Bryant has had on on the game and on high performance on on business and strategy. We saw him after his retirement really venture more deeply into investing and traveling and speaking and, and coaching and doing clinics. And he opened up a, a sports performance academy and and, and and growing his influence well beyond what happened uh, on the basketball court. And that's the power of influence. And that's the power of, of leadership. I also feel like the death of Kobe and and Gigi and the other individuals who are on that helicopter, it's given people permission to grieve. A lot of times as men, emotional displays aren't something that's necessarily applauded. And when we look at the, the theories of leadership, especially great man leadership, the idea is that. In order to be a leader, you have to be be very, very stoic. You you can't show emotion at any time. And now we we find that that's not the case. And and there is some some challenges that come along with not displaying emotion. Uh, So there's it's not necessarily applauded or or men don't feel comfortable. But but this and I was talking to one of my good friends. I, I had him on a previous episode, Dr. David Defoe. And he was talking about this idea of transference and transference suggests that it's when something tragic happens that we're not deeply connected to it, it triggers something inside of us. So instead of necessarily being sorrowful for the event, we're sad because it it resonates with us based on something that we've experienced. And this new traumatic event gives us permission or or gives us an impetus to express the grief and sorrow we've been holding for a long time about something that's happened to us. So a a lot of things going on, a lot of things going around. Uh, What's helpful to note is that as leaders, uh, we need to be ready to help our teams when they go through difficult experiences, when they go through through grief. I, I suggest that you go back and listen to that episode with Dr. David Defoe. And see how, as a leader, you can get some training of some sort to deal with or to help walk your people through your teams through what sort of crisis training or grief training. And, yeah, I'm talking to to corporate corporate execs. I'm talking to nonprofit leaders uh, for the most part. Sooner or later, everyone is going to go through some challenging experience, some grief, some loss, some transition of some sort. And as a leader, uh, we need to create experiences that allow our teams um, to 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 express uh, the grief that they're dealing with and and to walk them through and and be supportive. So as much help as you can get in that area, because we want to create cultures, we want to create authentic cultures where where people feel comfortable uh, and we can get the most and the best out of them. Speaking of authentic, my guest today is Thomas C. Murray. Tom is the author of the new book, Personal and Authentic, Designing Learning Experiences That Impact a Lifetime. Now, Tom serves as the Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools, a project of the Alliance for Excellent Education that's located in Washington, D.C. Now, Tom has testified before the United States Congress and has worked alongside that body, the U.S. Senate, the White House, the Department of Education, and State Departments of Education's of education, corporations and school districts throughout the country to implement student centered learning. And we talk about that in the podcast. What is student centered learning, student centered learning while helping to lead future ready schools? Tom is a a regular conference keynote speaker. He was named. National Global Ed Tech Leader of the Year in 2018, Education Thought Leader of the Year in 2017, and one of the 20 to Watch by NSBA in 2016. So so Tom really has a passion for for education and creating spaces, safe spaces, real, personal and authentic spaces and in which not only students thrive, but also teachers as well. So here's my conversation with Thomas Murray. I'm excited to be joined on this episode of the Leading While Green podcast by Thomas Murray. Tom, thanks for being my guest today.
1: It is my honor. I am completely excited to be with you today. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: So Tom, let's distill this thing down. I know you travel and you speak and you consult. And sometimes before you speak, people read this two, three, four paragraph bio. Um, and, and sometimes as, as speakers, as presenters, we don't, we don't like all of that. So if you could just distill it down, maybe into one or two touch points, what would you really like people to know about you?
1: Yeah, you know, that's really funny
0: because I, uh, I actually have that conversation all of the time. And, he,
1: <laughs> you know, I was doing an event yesterday in Louisiana and, and folks said, hey, send me a bio. And it's, it's my initial piece of the way I used to do it is kind of here's this formal, this award and did this and was this. And at the end of the day, here's what I want people to know. I want people to know I'm an educator and I want people to know I'm a dad and I would bring mm. it down and leave it to that because for me, it provides two different lenses. One, the educator side, it's the experiences and understanding, you know, how difficult the world of work is for educators. But on the flip mm. side, I see it through the eyes of my baby girl and my little boy. And like, what are the learning experiences they need? So it's an educator being a dad.
0: Okay. So we're going to talk about your family uh, in, in a little bit, but I want to dig back into your personal story uh, just a bit more. Who, who, who was the teacher, who was the educator, the coach, the mentor when you were coming up that basically said, come here, son, let me help you, that really left an indelible mark. Yeah. who you've become as a person.
1: So in the opening chapter of Personal and Authentic, I talk about my mentor. and was the mentor I was assigned as a brand new teacher. You know, coming out of college, I uh, had done well in school, knew I wanted to work with kids, but realistically, I had no idea what I was getting into as an educator. I had a mentor across the hall, a guy named Mark Weeder. and before my very first day, he put his arm around me, and there I was, 21 years old, thought I had a clue as what I was getting into, puts his arm around me and said, Tom, this job is about loving and caring about kids. Every thing else comes secondary to that, you know, and then, then followed that up with, you know, if you lose sight of that in the course of your career, I'll give you two options as your mentor. One, just get out and go do something mm. different and let somebody come here. That's going to love and care about kids or number two, refocus on it because when you, you know, the kids that are about to walk down this hallway, they need you. And for some, yeah. you're going to be the stability that they have. And so that was literally advice that I received before my very first bell rang on my very first day. And I am so grateful to have a mentor that shot it straight to me that didn't sugarcoat things, they called mm. me out when my mindset was off. And I, to be honest, I think sometimes we did need to do a little bit more about that. And I'm not talking about, you know, blowing things up publicly. I'm not talking about gossiping about somebody. I'm talking about those hard conversations when somebody's mind sets off. And I, you know, I can tell story after story. There was one time where he pulled me aside and he said, Tom, like, we don't do that here. We don't act yeah. like that here. When I was complaining about a child in the faculty wow. room and to have that one-on-one conversation, that's a true mentor. That's somebody that truly had been there for 26 years, but I'll give him a lot of credit. This wasn't, This he wasn't a principal. He wasn't a superintendent. It wasn't in his job description to have to call somebody out for acting like a knucklehead he saw the best in it and he saw the best in saying like he wanted to build capacity in me and the life experiences that he had but to hear a mentor somebody that I looked up to and admired say we don't do that here are words that I will never forget and so you know having people like that throughout my career but those that would also encourage and push and inspire um, those that I could see greatness in that I wanted to be like those are the people that I've tried to model my career after
0: now, now you you mentioned that this, this person as mentor of yours wasn't necessarily a, a titled leader, and I remember watching a a video on YouTube of one of your keynotes from an interview before one of your keynotes a couple of years ago, and you were talking about really the dichotomy between leadership by title and leadership by action. Why why is this so important for us? At, no matter what stage of our career to really embrace this idea of leadership by action, the same way your mentor did with you? Yeah, great question. And
1: so that's something that Eric Schoeninger and I wrote in Learning Transformed, this idea of contrasting the two. You know, it's interesting, the dichotomy in the way that I work currently, you know, there's times that I'll be with a room full of support staff members, which you have bus drivers, custodians, and I will tell you, that's actually one of my favorite groups to Mm -hmm. work with. And then there's times where I'm sitting in a room full of a few hundred um, superintendents. And so you're talking like the top of the pinnacle of Title, And you're talking Mm. the lowest in terms of title. But I will tell you, I have found some of the greatest school leaders, whether I was working side by side with them as a teacher, whether it was my time as a principal, some of the greatest school leaders that are in the United States are those that have support staff as their title. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's those people that make a few dollars an hour above minimum wage, but are a backbone to that school community. And they know every child, they know their families, they've got stability, they work with so many kids, they know them by name, you know, and sometimes in some schools, they don't even have a place to put their code at the end of the day. Mm. And so when we take a look at things like that, some of the greatest school leaders that I've ever worked with are those early teachers, that third-year teacher, fourth-year teacher. But I'll also contrast that with working with so many superintendents, working with thousands of people each year. Some of the best school leaders that I also see are those saying, this is my last year and I'm retiring in June and I'm going to give it my all and do whatever I can for kids. So Mm. you know, it doesn't come down to just numbers of years of service. It'd be silly for us to think of that 35-year is always going to be better than that 15-year. And I'll (laughs) tell you, I don't mean to minimize experience at all because experience is vital in that. But at the end of the day, here's what I would say. Just because a superintendent on their business card, it says superintendent, the top of the title of a school district, that doesn't make them effective. Just like having a teacher certificate, a, a piece of paper hanging on our wall, which says we can teach, doesn't make us effective in the classroom. Sometimes people get angry when I say that, but I'm just being real. Just like putting it this way, let's take it outside of schools. Every one of us that drives on the road has a driver's license. That doesn't mean everybody's good at driving, right? And Absolutely. so it's really the same kind of thing because you could say, well, a teacher license in that regard, like we all pass certain tests, which really only means we, only ha- we all have certain content knowledge or a basic level of understanding, which sure, that's important. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean we're effective. So what is it that makes them it effective? It's our actions. It's not the title which comes by. Because at the end of the day, people don't really care about titles. They care about what people do.
0: Now, are your are your kids school age?
1: They are. So, my little girl, she's in fourth grade, sitting in a public school in Pennsylvania today. Okay. Uh, my little my little guy just started kindergarten this year, so he's uh, he's six.
0: Okay. So, w- w- having school age children, and with your work as an education leader and influencer, how 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 do you draw the line between uh, parenting your your children and getting involved in the educational environments and culture? in which they reside. How how do you, how do you make that work? Sure. So first
1: I'm blessed to to live in in an incredible district. So my mindset since day one has really been, what can I do to support you? How can I provide resources? How can I provide tools? Because I recognize, on one hand, I recognize, you know, I remember being a a first-year teacher and having in my classroom having the child of another teacher in my district. And Mm. I remember that first year having this kind of heightened anxiety during that first conference of, you know, are they gonna be firing away questions that make me feel uncomfortable? Or I I better bring my A game. So I recognize, (laughs) you know know, when my children are out there. And I will say, you know, I I say every year, I'm not looking for anything special for my children, if anything, be harder on them and push them even further in that regard. But that balance for me is I look at it as right. and understanding that kindergarten teacher, that fourth grade teacher, they're incredible teachers that they have. But I recognize how hard those two people work on a given day. Mm-hmm. So if I can do something to support them, if I can get a resource for them, if I can have a conversation to give them ideas or support, um, whatever I can do. Because at the end of the day, I recognize it is not just about my two babies and that selfishly is data. You know, I see it that way. But at the end of the day, every child in that classroom, every child in that school deserves the same opportunities that my own children were. So, But as a parent, my job is really just to support. Support. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's times, you know, and looking at it, fortunately they're with great educators, but, um, if there's, there's questions or things that would come up, it's, it's having a conversation saying, Hey, let's think through this. How can we help that? You know, and I will say and being vulnerable, both my kids have special needs in different ways. One has an IEP, one has a 504. So there's times we're sitting down thinking through accommodations and thinking through those kinds of things to mm-hmm. be able to support it. But at the end of the day, I see myself as part of a team, not using some, Hey, I'm this, you know, I use this national influence. You better do this in my classroom. That'll never, be me because for me having been that teacher, having been that principal, have it worked at district office, if I was on the other side of that, it would have been the largest turnoff. And fortunately I'm in a great place with great leadership and, and great yeah. teachers and I respect their work and I respect them as professionals.
0: So at what point in your teaching and uh, really in your day-to-day responsibilities and pouring into young people into classrooms, at what point in that journey did this you know idea of of leadership, um, being a school leader come into mind? Was it something that you set out to do in the beginning or you just kind of maybe stumbled in it or was it a definitive track that you went down to get to those spots?
1: It's funny. I I get the question often, whether it's now, whether it was Five, even ten years ago, at times, like how do you get to do what you get to do? Like even right now, people will say, like, well, how do you get to stand on a stage in front of a few thousand people, or how do you get to keynote an event, or how do you get to speak here, how do you get to lead this institute as superintendents? Or when I was an administrator, I will tell you that I've never set out. And it sounds it sounds counterintuitive to like goal setting and the vision of here's what I want and <laughs> go get it. That's yeah, actually it. never been me. And, and let me give you an example. The reason I became a principal is because, and this goes hand in hand with your podcast and the messages you, you share, I, was, I loved being a teacher. I was not one that was looking to get out. I loved what I was doing. I loved teaching every day. Um, at that point, I was teaching middle school after teaching elementary. I moved to middle school. I was teaching sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. I loved the chaos of middle school, the the, <laughs> the age, like you know, the structured chaos that's there. You're laughing every day. At the same time, driving home, being like, did that kid really do that? You know, and just kind of how crazy middle school can be. And I loved it. But I had a principal that walked into my room one day, closed the door, looked at me. Now, I already already had my master's degree. I was already. Uh, t- closer credit wise to the top of the pay scale, walked in, closed the door, walked across the room, looked at me and said, so Tom, I'm just going to shoot it straight. I'm going to retire in the next couple of years. And Mm. I'd love to see somebody like you running this building. Wow. Give it some thought. I walked out. I remember driving home being like, "Huh," and I started looking like, would I want to be a principal? Is that something I'd want to do? And, you know, I, I feel like I've always led in different ways, whether it was through coaching or, you know, taking on other opportunities. I've enjoyed those things. But, you know, going into administration is a very different realm. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to go into administration because I think it's going to be this, wow, this be- bigger, better paycheck. And, oh, look at that. They get paid so much more. Yeah, the pennies per hour more that you make, yeah, keep it, <laughs> right? Because, because of the extra time and the extra stressors and those things. But I will tell you, it really was because of a mentor. And we talked about a mentor earlier. That was another one in my – my career as a principal that saw something in me that I might not have seen in myself um, and, and looked at me and said, you know, I really think you can do this. And so the following day, I walked into his office and I said, tell me more about what you're thinking. And he said, I really believe in you. And I think you've got the leadership and the people capacity to build, to build relationships with people. And, and I see the way you love kids. And I'd love to see that running a building like this someday. And so I went back to school and I didn't have any financial benefit for going back to school at that point. Cause I had to go get another degree. Um, yeah. And and so when I looked at that, it was really somebody seeing something in me and building capacity in me and saying, I think you can do this. And so what I will tell you, what I didn't know at that point is his assistant principal, my assistant principal, of the building was going to be leaving about six months later later, which led to an opportunity of, Hey, on a teacher contract, do you want to do this teacher on special assignment now that you've been in this for kind of six months and, and give it a shot. And then, Hey, if you don't like this and you don't want to do this, you can walk back and just continue to be a teacher and do what you want to do. And so it it provided an opportunity to kind of get a a foot across the line a little bit and say, Hey, is this something I want to do? And, And I did some of the low level stuff. I tell you, you ever want to be an administrator, go do some of the bus referrals and those kinds of things at middle school, mm-hmm. and then walk away and say, you still want to do this job? Because that's some of the most things that you want to start pulling your hair out at the end of the day, right? When you're dealing with that kind of stuff, but, it, but, but seeing the, the opportunities to build capacity in kids, seeing the opportunities to encourage and inspire teachers, seeing opportunities, I, I learned so much because as a teacher, you know, your classroom, your little realm but you don't always know two classrooms down what teaching and learning looks like. And it's such, a, it's such a weird scenario where you see these people all day long, you're in the hallways, you're standing across from the hallways, but the teaching and learning side, you don't often know what it, it looks like two doors down. And so, when I became that administrator and could see that with other teachers and see it, I saw such strengths in people that had such differences for me in ways that they did things that maybe I had never saw or never seen. And then it became an opportunity to support other teachers with new ideas and new thoughts. And so that's when I made the jump. But I will give credit to people that saw something in me before I even thought about it myself.
0: Now, before we we start to unpack uh, part of your book that we mentioned before, I want to ask you about this cool title that you have, Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools. Uh, How'd you get there? And how have you pulled classroom experience and administrative experience into this particular role you have now?
1: Yeah, so it's so going back a little bit. It's kind of funny because I actually haven't applied for I want to say my last four positions. Mm-hmm. There are things, there are opportunities, there are conversations that start or hey, would you happen to know? Uh, not realizing they're talking about, would you be interested in kind of being naive early on? Yeah. Um, you know, and having moved from being a principal ultimately to move into district office for an experience, superintendent sat me down and said, you know, hey, and again, I was loving being an I was an elementary principal at that point. I was loving it. That was one of the greatest jobs on the planet. Not remotely looking to leave. Superintendent said, hey, we've got an Opportunity, I think you're the right person for it. Would love to have you leave it. So anyway, I go to district office, and prior to getting to where I am now in Washington, DC, um, I had gotten recruited. We were doing some great things at our district level and um, you know, some things I had the opportunity to leave, but a lot of credit to my teacher, superintendent, their vision, their hard work with that. Mm -hmm. And so one day I get an email saying, Hey, we're looking for somebody that you know can work with school leaders, district leaders that could work with some state and federal policy. Do you know anybody? And I'm thinking to myself, like, huh, who do I know? And then this (laughs) light bulb goes off. Off, like wait a minute is that one because you know in education it's like recruiting ideas not a normal feat it's not something that we're used to and so okay. had a couple conversations and you know they really pra- phrased it to me and again I wasn't looking to leave like I loved what I did I had an amazing team great great folks and just the opportunity to, to create that circle of influence even a little bit larger and so now having the opportunity to work around the country as that director of innovation for future ready schools for those listening that don't know what future ready schools is you can check out futureready.org. we don't sell anything it's bipartisan It's nonprofit. We raise a few million dollars every year to support school and district leaders. And so the work we do is free. And so part of the thing, you know, I would be a really skinny salesperson. I can tell you that (laughs) because I can't, can't, I'm not the person that, and there's nothing wrong with it. There's a place for it, but I'm not the type of person that can sit across from a superintendent or a tech director or a principal and try and sell them something that I don't think they really desperately need. I just can't do it. And part of it's probably from my experience or having been on the other side of that and just feeling that sour pit in my stomach like, man, this just doesn't feel right, you know? And so in that, as the director of innovation, now getting to work with school and district leaders across the country through Future Ready Schools, but also having and using a lot of my vacation time um, to be able to go speak and to be able to do some of my own thing and some of the flexibility there, um, because at the end of the day, it puts me in front of lots of people. And so um, whether it's speaking on a book, whether it's leading a conference, I have the opportunity to to speak a lot and I recognize that privilege in that regard. And so that really also leads to some of the things that I speak about um, because I recognize I'm one lens, I'm one voice, I'm a white male. There's a lot more to education and things that are out there than my voice, my lens. And so part of that is also trying to support those people that have different lenses or are female or are people of color that I need to help amplify in that way because their voices matter just as much.
0: So so speaking talking about speaking let's talk about your book Personal and Authentic Designing Learning Experiences that Impact a Lifetime. So I was looking at looking it up on Amazon. You got 40 plus five star reviews. Not 40 plus five star reviews and other four star, three star, two star reviews. No, no, no. All of your reviews are five star reviews. So so big kudos to you on, on that. Uh, multiple book projects. Why, why was this the right time? Uh, and I know the book has been out for a little bit, but why was this sure. the right time to write this book?
1: So I'll say this book is really different. You know, having been part of um, multiple book projects, as you said, Learning Transformed was my last one. It's a bestseller with ASCD. Eric Scheninger and I wrote that. School Leadership, it's very much, it's not written for your average, you know, hey, I'm just getting started as a second grade teacher and I'm looking for tools. Like that is not your book for that. It's very much systems change and those kinds of things. Um, but I, as I was working with school and district leaders across the country and just working with so many of them, I, on one hand, I see such a need for just... hope. I see looking in the eyes of people that feel beaten down, looking in the eyes of people that just feel so defeated, looking at the eyes of people that just saying, I don't know if I can go on. I felt like I had something to offer because I have been the person that's felt exactly like that. I have been the person that after trauma has occurred, whether it was through my mentor, a child in my classroom, true trauma of life experiences of saying, I, going home and saying to my wife, like, I don't know if I can go on like with tears in my eyes. Like maybe I picked the wrong profession. That's been me. And so whether it was through a really, really difficult first year, whether it was through times where observations or, or things fell apart or things didn't go so well and knowing that feeling and picking myself back up. I feel like many times I've been there, and of course every life experience is different, and I haven't experienced what every place is experienced on that end, but I yeah. felt like I had something to offer that could offer some folks hope, but I also wanted to be very practical in, in the experience, and one of the benefits of having the opportunity to work nationally and meeting so many people is there's over a hundred ideas from other people throughout the book that are just very practical, quick, try this tomorrow, or hey, use this in the classroom, or think about it this way, from teachers, from principals, um, from um, uh, coaches, instructional coaches to offer teachers the idea of something to be really practical. So when I talk about personal and authentic and, and even just being able to speak to a few thousand people about it yesterday, one of the first things I often say is look like this isn't a new concept or a new idea. There's been personal and authentic things happening in, in classrooms since the one room schoolhouse. So it's not just like, here's your next guy to do it. It's how do we make sure that the inside of our school walls really correlate with the outside of our school walls, the inside of our school experiences correlate with what kids face when they leave us at the end of the, day? And what does it actually look like? But how can we be practical in this process? And so there's a lot of things out there that are kind of big picture, even systems change or philosophical or theoretical. I wanted to be uber practical, but I didn't want it to just be the instructional components of, you know, here's your 10 best instructional practices. Like there's a million of those books out there. I wanted it to speak to people's hearts. So when I talk about and write about things about how we've got to care, you know, when we care more about what we teach than who we teach, we have totally lost the purpose in the work, I wanted to speak to people's hearts to not lose sight of why we do what we do. It's so it's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day because teachers are those people that pour their lives into other people's kids and they go and they go and they go and they go often until they have absolutely nothing left. And, and so having that servant mindset is does not mean that having that servant heart does not mean that we give and we give and we give and we run over ourselves in that process. So part of it's also this idea of, no, you have the right to take care of yourself. You need to say something. Sometimes I'm not bringing that laptop home on a Friday because I'm going to be present with my family this weekend. I'm not going to answer emails on a Saturday morning because I'm going to go to my kid's softball game or whatever the case might be. And and so to give give people that encouragement, that hope, but then also give them practical things of what can it look like. And so it's really that whole child approach of seeing Kids is far more than data points and test scores, and I think after No Child Left Behind, I think we're seeing a little. We've been seeing a um, you know a pendulum swing back around, uh, around the past couple of years. We're seeing more with SEL, you know the social emotional side. We're seeing yeah. with trauma informed. You know some of it has to do with some of the pressures because of the school shootings and things that are out there that we're seeing that create this, these these just awful events, which then create that response. And unfortunately, that's the way it's played out where you see schools as well. Some of the best schools that are out there have never lost sight of. We're gonna value kids first before their data and test scores. And when kids are walking through the hallway, we're gonna see as people as first, not where they fall on some sort of data plot. And so, um, you know, with that, when it comes down to that, it's, it's given educators, the hope, the inspiration, a little bit of a bush and a challenge as well, talking about mindset and making sure it's more about us, our them than it is about me and my and helping people to look in the mirror before they point the finger and so um, I felt like I had something to offer that and just something that I could give some encouragement I want them putting that book down feeling like I can't wait to get back to my classroom tomorrow or I can't wait to go lead that faculty meeting tomorrow because I want to model to my teachers what they can do in that classroom and um, and I, I really appreciate the, the feedback from it it's, it's truly been incredible I, I get either an email or a DM or a tweet or something that just Something that hits somebody's heart, something where they share that—that made them tear up. That it just they connected to. Um, It's a very different book in that regard. There's a lot of story. There's a lot of narrative. There's a lot of life stories that make the analogy about um, coming back to the classroom and what that actually looks like. And so some of those everyday interactions we have in life. um, One example actually share my daughter's own story related to that. It's in this chapter around the hidden stories within and Mm -hmm. hidden, not being bad. It's just the stories that we all have on our hearts that those sitting next to us don't know. It's the things that we might leave. We, what we leave home in the morning, we get to school. It's just maybe, maybe we're struggling in our marriage. Maybe we're struggling with our own child, or maybe we're super jazzed up because we're moving into a a new house and things are good. Or we're about to give birth to our our first child or things are really good. We're super excited. And the people around us might not know. We walk by them in the supermarket they might not know, but yet it's on our mind. It consumes our thoughts. And it's reminding folks that as kids walk into our classrooms, they're the exact same way. And if we don't take time to recognize those stories, and one of the pieces that I write in Personal and Authentic is that when we take a look, we make so many judgments. You know, one of the things I'll do with teachers is I actually use my daughter's own data and I put it up on a screen. I don't tell them it's my daughter at first. And I say, you know, here, you're getting a new, ch- a new student tomorrow. In the past 15 months, this student has missed 35 days of school and they've been tardy 20 times. What are the judgments we might make? And so when we take those as educators, the same judgments I might've made as a classroom teacher or thought, you know, parents are lazy, kid, lazy, kid doesn't care. They don't want to be there. They're disconnected. They're not invested. You know, maybe they're pregnant. You know, all those, all these things come out right. there and I switch it to, all right, so let me tell you the next part of the story. That's my baby girl. That's my daughter. And the place goes quiet. And then I share, well, now you want to know why, Right. And then when I start to say, well, here's part of her story. You see, my daughter was born with such severe food allergies that like literally one seed of sesame could have killed her. We almost lost her three times when it came to that. So what if I told you over those 15 months that she went through therapy, every one of those 35 days absent, she was in a doctor's office two hours from our house undergoing therapy? You know, and I'll share. What if I told you that every one of those, those doctor visits, every time she was outside of school, she would say, Mommy, I really wish I could be in school today. Or Daddy, I really wish I could be in school today. And so when we tell the story, we understand the story. Now we look at it differently. Because if I told you the story and then I told you the data, you'd look at the data and be like, well, yeah, of course, you do what you got to do to keep this baby safe. And that's where we talk about here from a personal and authentic end. One thing I want people walking away with is is, is I, I write this idea of the difference between making a judgment and having empathy. It's understanding the story. And so many times we make judgments in our classroom, or, you know, we think about that one student in our classroom, or maybe we're a principal, we think about that kid on the 49th day of school has been in your office 52 times, like there's a story there. And if we just base it on data, we can also make really bad decisions. And so, um, you know, I want people to walk away with practical ideas, a push to challenge mindset, but also seeing every child as a a brilliant individual with needs and with um, strengths and talents. We do so much, th- so many things in education that's like deficit mindset, where we focus on what kids don't have. But I want to also flip that equation to focus on what they do have, and how do we leverage those strengths in the process?
0: You, you know, sharing part of your your daughter's story and then having these conversations with with educators and support staff, and some of the tensions they feel, you, you talk about having a learner centered approach. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with education. What's the learner-centered approach versus maybe uh, assessment-centered, as you were talking about the metrics or knowledge-centered? And why is it sometimes difficult for educators and environments to pivot to going to a learning-centered environment?
1: Sure. You know, it's interesting because under the past decade and a half or so, we've spent so much around standards and testing and those kinds of things. And, you know, I think they certainly play a role. Like, I'm not the guy that's going to downplay all that and say none of it's important. You know, the basic premise is by, say, fourth grade, every kid should have this understanding or this knowledge. Like, I'm okay with that. But to me, that's a baseline. In the sense of here's an idea of roughly where kids should be, because at the end of the day, children are not standard. And yeah. to have, to say that they're going to walk out standard, like we're not creating robots here. And so what happens when that's our mindset is we lose sight of the amazing talents and gifts and abilities, it, the uniqueness in every child. Like, let me give you an example. My own two babies are complete opposite. So, these two kids have the same like genetic makeup in that regard. you know they come from the same family tree, they have the same set of parents, and yet, like even down to the ice cream, my daughter loves chocolate, he loves vanilla, he loves sports, she hates sports, she loves music, he doesn 't want to play music, and it 's like literally down to the opposites of what they like and don 't like that 's just my two kids so now, multiply that by five hundred in a middle school or a thousand in a middle school, so you 've got a thousand or fifteen hundred kids, yeah. and to say they 're all going to be the exact same. That's ignorance. And it's just, it's, it's malpractice in my opinion. And so when we look at that, that, that from that end, um, and we, we look at this idea of learner centered, it's really flipping the mindset of understanding first and foremost, this work is not about us. And when I say that, sometimes people get like all riled up Well, you're demeaning teachers. No, I'm not doing that at all. I'm just recognizing why we do what we do. My good friend, Jimmy Costas asks a great question all the time. And he says like, what is it that you said in that interview chair? And, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think about it because I, you know, in the few hundred interviews that I've done as principal and over at district office and so many people, never one time did somebody sit across from me and be like, you know, this, this work's going to be about me. I'm going to show up late. And then, you know, you come into my office and you, I, you, you run a faculty meeting three minutes over, I'm getting up and I'm walking out, you know, I'm going to handle discipline. I'm just going to send them to you. I don't got time for that. Like, I've never one time heard that. It was all about this idea of like, well, I love kids. I care about kids. I'm going to do what I, what I can to support kids. So being learner-centered is putting the kids' interests first and foremost. It does not mean we devalue ourselves as educators. That does not go hand in hand. And if that's a the way you're thinking about it and somebody's thinking about it that way, I would say that's more of a mindset problem and more of a reflection of that person's mindset. Because, yes, we need to value each other as educators. We need to take care of ourselves. Educators need to be respected. And I'm not talking about that realm. I'm talking about when I look and I've got – Thir- 25 30 students sitting in front of me do i see them as one group or do i see them as a vastly different set of kids that are sitting in that room with vastly different talents and vastly different needs mm-hmm. being learner centered is recognizing differences not as negatives recognizing differences as positives and strengths in that environment and doing whatever we can to support them in that regard
0: uh, these these words how did, how did you decide on the words personal and authentic uh, for, for the title? Because I know some people listening to that, uh, they're thinking, I don't, I don't necessarily want to be that in a, in a learning environment. I have my home life yep. and I have my school life and yep. I just, I just want to teach. I don't want to really have deep connections because I've been burned before and yep. I'm only going to show people a cross section of who I am. So why, yeah. this, why personal and authentic?
1: So I've asked over, I would estimate over 10,000 educators, two questions and doing a lot of workshops, doing a lot of trainings. I get to to do a lot of things. It's not always this keynote standing on the stage. I actually prefer having interactions for days at a time and deep Mm -hmm. conversations. And I've asked over 10,000 educators, these two questions, what's the best professional learning experience you've ever had and why what's the worst Professional learning experience you've had, in line. I've asked those questions to groups of superintendents. I've asked those questions to groups of teachers. I've asked those questions to groups of support staff members, and the answers are always the same. It does not matter which group it is. So, let me give you an example. When te- people talk about the best experiences, and if you're listening to the podcast right now, like I'd I encourage you to think about, like what what would it would you say for you? And at the end of the day, people say different versions of this. It was personal for me it was relevant for the work that I do. Cool. There were takeaways that I could use. There were things that I could do differently. When people say, well, what was the worst? Yeah, there was no relevance for me. I got nothing out of it because there was no takeaways. There's nothing I can do tomorrow. It wasn't I. And at the end of the day, when you think about all the different things and people start to describe even the presenter, Oh, they were well, on the best side. Well, they were engaging. They were, they were funny. They made a connection to the audience. The flip side, it was death by PowerPoint. They had stood behind you know, a, a microphone and just lectured at us for three hours. Nobody laughed, nobody moved. I couldn't even go to the bathroom. It, it's literally the exact same conversation between professional learning with adults and learning for kids in the classroom. Because at the end yeah. of the day, professional learning is just a microcosm of what high quality and teacher learning looks like. And so the more that I've had those conversations and found like, how do we make things personal? But what I'm not saying in that process, and I clearly state it, verbatim in the book as I'm not talking about sticking a kid behind a device all day long. Now I'm a huge fan of ed tech when we use it well as a tool to support it, but I'm not talking about, let's just put a kid behind a computer, let that do the teaching. Cause to me, that's some of the most unpersonal and unauthentic opportunities that happen. So that's not what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about how do we do things such as what taking a look at the social emotional learning side of things. Now, again, that's not a new concept. That's some things that some places have done really, really well, but you want to talk about being personal and authentic. If we don't recognize the heart, like that heart is that lever to get to that mind. And if we're so focused on content that we can't see who we teach, we're not going to be effective. Let me give you this example. The example I used yesterday with teachers in Louisiana is, you know, you could, you could know every piece, every standard, um, have it memorized and be able to say it backwards. You could know every piece of content that you're going to teach totally memorized. And at the end of the day, neither one of those things make you a good teacher. You could have all those things and be totally ineffective. Now, are standards and content important? Of course they are. But if you can't relate to people, you're not going to be effective. It's almost like when I go to the doctor, at the end of the day, if I've got something wrong or I'm anxious about something or maybe something's shown up on a scan and I'm, I'm going with my family and I'm really nervous about it, if that doctor speaks to me as somebody that has like like as, as some brain surgeon, they're talking to me like a neurosurgeon, I'm going to have <laughs> no idea what they're talking about. I'm just going to be like, doc, just tell me like it is. Speak to me in my language here. Relate to me. I want that doctor to see me as a dad thinking like, well, if I've got to break some bad news, like I don't want him to just be a robot, just reading an off a report. Why? Because that's the human side of what we do. And we've got to think about ourselves and what we expect from our own experiences out there. Like, why do you choose the doctor that you do? Yeah, we want them to be really knowledgeable. Of course we do. But I bet you we want the person that's also personable and can relate and Absolutely. has that relationship. You know, especially if we've got these high, high, you know, high life things going on. And so when we take a look just from what we expect out of life and the interactions that we have in everyday life, you know, when I, when I talk about like as, as teachers, think about who outside of school, who's that best friend of yours, who's your, your close group of friends at the end of the day, those are personal relationships. Those are authentic relationships. They're all different in that regard, but they're unique. You don't treat all your friends the exact same because it's personal and it's authentic in different ways. And so what I started to do when I started to write about it as well in that idea of personal and authentic, I actually started from the instructional end and I was talking about SEL and cultural responsiveness and... Um, and, and relevant and contextualized and interests and passions and strengths and authentic feedback and like all these ways that it can actually look in the classroom. So I wanted it to be really practical for teachers to give them number one affirmation of things are already doing really well, but number two, to also give them some ideal ideas. But then as I started to realize, I started to think like, well, as I talk about culture being the foundation, like mm-hmm. a personal and authentic culture is really what works because it's personal because I feel like I'm a part of it. It's authentic because you can't just replicate it and say, okay, we're going to take this culture here and we're going to put it over here with these people. Like it doesn't work like that. It's authentic (laughs) in nature. But then as I was writing it as well, and that relationships really being the heart of the framework and thinking, well, relationships are personal and authentic. You know, when I think about the example I was just sharing, my closest friends, those are personal and authentic experiences. And then as I was thinking about even um, when I started to talk about some of the supports of a framework around things such as tools and learning spaces or technology or those kinds of things, what is it that really works? Well, if I think about technology for me as a student in a classroom, What's personal? What's authentic and experience for me versus if they just hand everybody the exact same thing all the time? Well, it's not going to be personal and authentic in that regard. Um, when I think about learning spaces, that's where you can take a look at things such as you know cultural relevance in our room, making sure that what are the, what are the images that are displayed, what's the literature that I'm taking a look at, because those are all things. How do I relate to that personally? The authentic experience, but it's all going to be dependent on the lens one has. And so, you know, whether I'm a female, whether I'm a student of color, whatever the case might be, a personal and authentic experience is going to be um, different from them. And so it's recognizing those differences, not as negatives or not as things that we now have to do. It's recognizing those differences as strengths for us. And how do we leverage those strengths and amplify those strengths for each person that's there? So at the end of the day, it's what I found has worked in my experience as a teacher, as a principal, as a district level leader, and now nationally as well. And that's why I call it that.
0: Let's talk about the different lenses that we see through sometimes. You I saw a post on social media and it said, we don't have a teacher shortage. We have a something to the effect of, we have a shortage of people with master's degrees that are willing to work for $50,000 or something, something like that. Well, help, help us with having the right lens as it relates to being an educator and going in into these environments, because uh, let's be honest, we don't pay teachers yep. what they're worth. Yep. Uh, but but speak to uh, just the need of even even viewing it as a sacrifice for the greater good. And I know maybe recruit a recruiting speech or something. Why is it so important for those of us with a gift, talent or interest in education? to make that long-term commitment
1: yeah so the dichotomy as you're saying and i agree with everything that you said there you know teachers have such a great skill set um, that they can walk away from what they do quite often and go make far more money in the private sector. So I think it goes back to, and that, that's just a reality because teachers are very skilled people. I mean, the way they communicate, the way they train, there's so many skills that they have that the average business is dying for that's out there. So that's just a reality. So I would say on one hand, it's, it's, it's going back and it's this idea of focusing on our why. Um, one of the things Michael Jr. Michael Jr. is a stand-up comic. I, I love his work. One of the things he says is when we know our why, our what has more impact because we are walking yeah. in or towards our purpose. So for me, it's starting with our why. I've never met an educator that said, "You know, I got into this profession for the money. Like this is all about the Benjamins." And you know, I want to put my feet up and I'm going to be living in the Caribbean on my boat because this is that's why I, I just wanted to go teach kids. Like you don't do it for that reason you know, you don't, you don't set out and say, I want to be an educator because I want to be wealthy. Hmm. But I would say educators are some of the wealthiest people on the planet in terms of not measuring wealth by dollars, by weathering wealth, by impact and legacy. And so when we take a look there, it's, it's, Educate educations and teaching is the greatest profession on the planet. What other profession on the planet? Do you have the opportunity to change the lives of people literally on a given day in an environment where they are not paying for it? Now, I I don't mean that from a tax or political end. I mean, they've got Mm -hmm. the right to a free and appropriate public education because that's something our um, our country believes in as we should. So those children are there, not because they paid the highest dollar to get into your classroom because they have the right to be there. And so when we take a look at that and I say to educators, we, I mean, when you look at the number of educators that, um, are leaving the profession in the first three to five years, there's so many things at play there. One absolutely is pay. One is educators are taking, you know, educators are asked to do more and more with less and less. It seems almost every year, but I would also say this work is insanely hard. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we were to say to the average person in the public that you're going to work all day long, we're going to give you 130 kids, your job is you have to move every one of them academically over the course of the year. You've got to meet all their social and emotional needs. Um, by the way, you can't even go to the bathroom during the day if you need to. And your $2 lunch, you're going to pay for yourself and on and on and on. How many people are going to go sign up for that? But you know what? a few million people do and they put their hand up every day and say, I'm going to be part of that. So it's recognizing that impact, um, doesn't always come back as dollars. It's the lives that we get to change. And there is nothing more noble than investing in the lives of other people. And so I do believe teachers need absolutely should be hired, paid in most areas. And when I say most, you know, there's certain areas of our country that teachers do very well and mm-hmm. they should do very well because, you know, because the the work and those things, but I would say, um, when, when we look at it, number one, it's focused on our, why, you know, if you don't like kids, Teaching is not for you because if you don't like kids, it's not about content. Go teach or research at the university level. Go find a place where you don't have to interact with other people. There's places out there you can do that. But if you love kids, there's no greater profession because you get to mold and shape their lives. And the analogy I make throughout Personal Authentic is your fingerprints of impact get to be on generations to come. And some might look at that as just some utopian-esque thought. And I would say absolutely not because the greatest teachers, their impact, you know how I know, you know, when I stood in a, a, a gymnasium yesterday with 2200 educators and I talked about impact and I talked about how their legacy, it's not going to be determined by what they taught. It's going to be, be determined by the who and how well they served others. Yeah. And when I asked them on the count of three to call out the name of that person that's made such an influence in their life, every one of them shouts out the name of a teacher or the name of a support staff member or a principal and ask for an educator that's just played such a vital place in their life, which shows whether it's five years later or 45 years later, the fingerprints of impact as educators that we get to have to be life changers. And I would say at the end of the day, it is fun. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's not exhausting, but it is fun. And having the opportunity to, to in, uh, enjoy it doesn't mean it's not going to be stressful at times. I don't want to say that at work. But I'll tell you, you go work in the average business out there where I'm kind of doing just the same thing day in, day out. But you get to design what your day looks like. Sometimes you're like, no, 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 I don't. I've got four math periods. Yeah, but inside each one of those math periods, you get to design what it's going to look like. So yeah. have fun and enjoy it in that process there as well. But at the end of the day, there's no more of a greater profession than being an educator. Um, Quite often, they don't get the respect that they deserve. But I would say we are also in education not very good at telling our story. Mm. We've got to change that narrative, a phrase that my good friend Joe Sanfilippo says often, change that narrative. So be proud in the work that we do and share out the amazing things we are doing. And sometimes we as educators, I think we're we're such humble people and don't ever change that as educators. That, that That humility is vital. But I would say be proud of the work you're Doing and don't make your share outs about you. Like at the end of the day, people don't care about you. They they want to see about kids and make mm-hmm. it about kids and share out the amazing things that kids are doing so you can help control that narrative in your school, in your community, and ultimately on a larger scale as well. Because if we're not telling our story, somebody else is going to be doing it. And when we allow other people to tell our story, they often rewrite the narrative, and you see that a lot politically, from the national, even state levels related to that. So tell our stories, be proud, stay focused on our why, and go make that difference in the lives of children every single day. It is an incredibly a noble act, and it's something I know when, when my last day comes up, being able to look back, it's not going to be about the... Well, I got a 2% raise that year. It's going to be about the influence, having the opportunity to change the lives of kids and support and inspire people is what I think I'll be most proud of at the end of the day.
0: I, I know we're about out of time, but I got to ask you this. When you look back on being in the classroom or being an administrator or or, or traveling and speaking or even uh, writing, what's one of the experiences, you could pick any one of those, what's one of the experiences that you had That at the end of the day, you said, that's why I do this. That's why I teach or that's why I serve teachers or that's why I travel and speak or that's why I write for this response or to help people in this way.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when personal authentic was released and, and I feel like I, I have that opportunity a lot, um, I, I receive whether it's messages on Twitter or emails or those kinds of things. I received an email this morning from a teacher just reflecting on yesterday. To me, those are the things that are so valuable to see, like how did it support other people or inspire other people? Um, but I'll say selfishly, my new book, having the opportunity to, um, give my own book at my cost to my baby's own teacher's and the teachers they will have at middle school um, to me is an invaluable experience and worth every, uh, the hundreds of hours it takes to write a book to get those thoughts into the hands as a number one as a thank you. I paid for it myself, uh, my own money and said, Hey, I just want you to have these. And they decided to do a book study on it. You know? So for me, when I look back and say like, to me, that's personal for my own babies. It's authentic for my own babies, helping to just influence the minds of those that will, will lead them as professionals. Um, I don't mean that in any sort of weird way about brainwashing them the way I want in any way. It's more of a supportive role to feel the ability that I can support those teachers that will eventually even teach my own children, those principal superintendent that lead my children. Um, and that's a real selfish answer, but I think the way uh, you, you asked that, you know, if I'm being real, that's worth every moment because I feel yeah. that. But when I step back, when I see things come up on social media every day of people reading the book or doing things in those different ways, it helps me feel like I'm influencing a far greater sphere um, than, you know, that maybe one spot where I started or whatever. At the end of the day, though, if I were to say what's well, one, you know, go back to, to one position, one thing being a teacher, being a principal, seeing those kids every single day. Um, I will tell you, there wasn't a position as a teacher or a principal that I left and walked away from that I didn't cry like a baby, just mm-hmm. being real because um, cause it's, cause it's impactful. And this information is not just about how much we know. The, the work that we do is about who we connect with, who we get to love and care on, who we get to support, who we get to challenge and inspire. Um, but we're also in this work together. And so I guess as we close, it's it's recognizing this work is not about us, but collectively when we work together, when we encourage each other, when we build each other up, when we challenge each other, like I shared my mentor did early on for me when my mindset was off, but build each other up in that process, we can get it work. We can do it. We can get this work done and our kids will benefit in the process.
0: Tom, how do we keep up with you? What are, what are the social handles? How, how can we get a copy of personal and authentic? I mean, this is shameless plug time. So (laughs) whatever you got, just let us know. Sure.
1: So I'd say if you take a look at my website, thomascmurray.com, one thing that I will say is even if people don't have the book, I put together over a hundred free resources. They're things that I use when I train. They're all the videos, articles, uh, lots of things that are on there all totally for free off Thomas C. Murray. So Thomas C. slash authentic. EDU will point to all those things that are there. Super pumped about that. If you're a principal listening, a superintendent listening, I've got everything that you could possibly need for book studies and those kinds of things. All totally free. Check those out. Um, Twitter and um, Twitter's Thomas C. Murray, uh, Instagram and Facebook are Thomas C. Murray, EDU, simply because I didn't get the Thomas C. Murray in time before somebody else grabbed it. So mm-hmm. Thomas C. Murray or Thomas C. Murray, EDU on, Um, pretty much every handle that you could use. So look forward to stay in touch. If you're listening to the podcast, love to have you reach out, share some thoughts and thanks for the opportunity today. It's great to be connected.
0: And if you didn't catch all of that, we'll put them in the show notes. So there'll be no excuse. My guest today has been Thomas Murray. We've had a great conversation about life, leadership and education. Tom, I wish you all the best in your journey and I, and I celebrate you for not just being authentic, personal and authentic, about your journey, but helping others be personal and and authentic about theirs as well. Thanks for having me today. Great conversation with Thomas Murray about his book, Personal and Authentic, Designing Learning Experiences That Impact a Lifetime. I wanna encourage you to check out Thomas's work and pick up your own copy of personal and authentic. Got great reviews on Amazon, so you want to check it out. Hey, the Find Your Courage Tour is coming to Atlanta. We're on a mission to help leaders face their fears and lead with greater courage in 2020. So join me and my friends in Atlanta on February 23rd for the Find Your Courage Tour. You can get tickets at courageatlanta.eventbrite.com. That's courageatlanta. eventbrite.com. Hey, that's all I got for this episode of the Leading Wild Green Podcast. You know it's my mission to help you live, learn, and lead with confidence. So until next time, take care and God bless.